You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. In this informative interview, I delve into the importance of Miranda rights, exploring the intricacies of this fundamental legal protection and its impact on individual rights during police interrogation. In this episode, you will gain valuable insight from today's guest, Kareem Vesup, civil rights litigation attorney specializing in police misconduct cases with over 17 years of passionate commitment to the inner city minority communities of New York City. Parents, I advise you to listen to this episode with your teens and young adults. We will unravel the significance of this constitutional safeguard, so stay tuned and don't miss out. This Around the Way girl wants to chat with you. She's discovering new information in this world that surrounds her, tapping into her inner power, her sexuality, and taking ownership of her insecurities. She discovered she had to unlearn some things. Come and enjoy her moments of reflection, re-education, redefinition, and evolution. Kick back, sip some wine, take a drive, whatever your vibe. Join me, your host, Shay Sana, with She Discovered Podcast. So stay tuned. You might learn some things. Disclaimer. Nothing that has been offered in this episode should be taken as individual legal advice. All scenarios are a case-by-case basis. A licensed attorney should always be consulted to obtain legal advice. Everything discussed is for informative purposes and should be taken with caution and discernment. As always, my topics that I choose to cover on the podcast are very dear to me. It's either it goes along with experiences I've had or it goes along with topics that I feel we do not communicate about. Sometimes even topics that are very sincere to the Black community. And I think this topic is definitely one of them. So we're talking today about Miranda rights as well as other rights us as Black people in the community have failed uh, to learn. And I don't even want to say fail to learn, but maybe have not been given the opportunity to really get educated on our civil rights. So I want to thank you again, Kareem, for being on She Discovered Podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's definitely an honor and certainly celebrate what you're doing and, and how you're serving the community by providing relevant and poignant information that could really make a difference in people's lives. So thank you for what you do. Yeah, yeah. Today is definitely going to be a, usually when I do interviews, I have things to say. I'll I'll talk a little bit. I'll share a little bit. But this is one of those interviews that I'm really just going to sit back and learn because I would say I myself don't know really all the rights that are afforded to me. So I'm really here just to learn as well as my audience. So before we tap into Miranda rights and all the laws and such, I want you to tell me a little bit about the sector of law that you practice and what brought you to this work. I'm a civil rights trial attorney, and I specialize in the area of police misconduct cases. I spend the majority of my time in my law practice bringing actions against municipalities and uh, individual officers uh, that stem from instances of false arrest, um, malicious prosecution, excessive force, other constitutional violations 
most often that result in an exoneration on the part of the plaintiff or a constitutional violation that ultimately results in their case being thrown out or whatever the case may be. So there is a civil component to constitutional actions. I believe wholeheartedly that one of the best ways to be able to bring about change in law enforcement is to make it so that mistakes on the part of police officers or intentional misdeeds and malfeasance by police officers becomes too expensive to continue business as usual. Mm. So in addition to the work that I do using civil litigation to hold police officers accountable, I also uh, talk quite frequently on platforms similar to yours. And I'm a staunch advocate that there must be greater financial responsibility for police officers who engage in acts of constitutional violations and violations of individual civil rights, because that personal stake that they have uh, will ultimately uh, model their behavior to be more consistent with the law and the constitutional provisions that apply to police action. So that's a very uh, roundabout answer to say I sue cops for a living. <laughs> you sue cops for a living. I like that one liner. So you said a couple things before I do the second part of the question. Just for legal terms, for the most common person, maybe they may not know. Can you describe what is a, a plaintiff and a defendant and type of terminology? I think most people are aware in a criminal case who the parties are, the two sides to a criminal lawsuit. You have the people on one side and then you have the individual named defendant on the other. In civil cases, it's a little bit different. The party that is bringing the lawsuit is referred to as the plaintiff and the party that's defending against the lawsuit is referred to as the defendant. So uh, in many instances, in almost all instances, when I bring lawsuits, I'm representing an individual member of the community, the plaintiff or plaintiffs, plural, and the action is being brought against a municipality who is a defendant and then also individually named police officers. And also the other part that you said, um, making it expensive for law enforcement or police officers to, you know, really think about the actions that they take. Would it be in connection? And I know this is a very sensitive topic, but would it be in connection to like the whole idea that was going on two years ago about defund the police? It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. I think that my understanding of defund the police was essentially saying we have been giving police officers the obligation to handle matters that they're really not trained or properly suited for and that we need to take some of the resources that we give to police departments to do that work and give them to entities and individuals who are better suited to perform that work. I think the perfect example of that is mental health. Police officers mm -hmm. are often not equipped to be able to properly deal with mental health emergencies, but they are asked and called upon to encounter those on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. So to the extent that budget items are created in order to be able to help facilitate that, take that money and put it in the hands of organizations that are better suited to do it. That's my understanding of defund the police. What I'm talking about is a little bit different. And by analogy, so you have a, a doctor, and I don't care if it's a good doctor or not so good doctor, in order to practice medicine, one of the things that a doctor has to have is malpractice insurance. Make a mistake in the practice of medicine. And notice I said the practice of medicine as opposed to the performance of medicine. But if you make a mistake in the practice of medicine, you know, one of the things that you as a doctor have to always 
think about in the back of your mind is you do not want to put yourself in a malpractice situation. So it becomes in your own self-interest to be better informed, better trained, to be judicious in terms of the decisions that you make while you're practicing medicine. I'm a lawyer, same situation. When I'm practicing law, in the back of my mind, I'm saying to myself, what are my obligations to my clients? You know, am I conducting myself in a way that's ethical based on the ethical rules? Am I putting myself in a position where I may be exposing myself to malpractice? That is an accountability measure mm -hmm. that creates a very self-interested person that's working in the field. Now, juxtapose that with police officers. And what do police officers have in almost every jurisdiction across the country? If a police officer makes a mistake and it results in a lawsuit, the police officer has no personal exposure. That it's almost always the municipality that is footing the bill for the errors of the individual police officer. Mm -hmm. My question is, what would happen to police officers if they were required to purchase and maintain liability insurance for themselves as an officer? Mm -hmm. What yeah. would happen? What would ultimately happen if that were to, to be the case? May police officers look at their decisions on an individual basis differently because now they have to be concerned about their own financial accountability for their errors? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I agree. Dangerous, yes. I think that it's one of the ways that you're self-governed. I think that it's something that should be introduced when it comes to law enforcement. Law enforcement right now has very powerful unions and many of the institutions within government really serve to insulate police officers and protect them, even when it is common knowledge, the various mistakes that police officers make on a regular basis. We hear about the most egregious situations. But imagine, imagine what happens on a regular basis that we do not hear about. That we don't on a daily basis. Correct. Wow. Correct. Thank you for tuning into the episode thus far. I want to remind you that She Discovered also has episodes on our YouTube channel, She Discovered Podcast Extension. As you enjoy audio episodes, tune in for further discussions on topics like spirituality, dating, sexuality, and entrepreneurship. And don't forget to click that subscribe button and notification bell to be updated on new released episodes. Finally, if you'd like to donate to the production of this podcast, please check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for being a part of my discoveries and enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> we haven't even gotten into the meat of the interview and I feel like I'm already learning so much in the sense of like perspective. You know what I mean? Because when I heard about the defund the police and how a lot of people were up in arms about it because certain people took it as you're just saying take away uh, or minimize the salaries of these police officers, right? So a lot of people that had family members or friends that were police officers, they were upset because they were like these police officers have families to feed. Why would you say defund the police? Why would you take away their salaries? And even at that point when I I didn't know all the details that it entailed. I was like, I doubt that's what defund the police really means. Although because of everything that was going on at that time with the George Floyd, everybody was up in arms. So it felt like that was attacked specifically on police officers. Let's take away their salaries. Let's make them feel it. You know, they have to be liable or accountable for the things that they do. But I ultimately saw it just as you explained, where it's like these millions and you could correct me millions of dollars that are going into law enforcement why Million. don't we, 
billions. Okay, here we are corrected billions of dollars that are going into law enforcement. Why isn't this these funds used correctly in helping police officers, like you said, specifically in mental health and all these different I don't know the verbiage would would use, but even um, how can I say it? like the different methods that they would use to strain a person like the different chokeholds or, or holding methods or whatever. It's just like even that are they trained properly in that like not to be funny, but some of y'all officers out here doing WWE, <laughs> you know, moves on civilians. And just like when someone passes away, you're shocked. I guess for that, that's how I, I understood it to be just like how you explained it. And I think you explained it perfectly well. What brought you into this line of practice, specifically this? So I grew up in Southeast Queens in the community where I grew up. Many of the people that I grew up with have had interactions with the police, have gone to prison. The experience of excessive force by the police is not something that's foreign to me. And when I made the decision I was going to go to law school, one of the things that I said to myself was that I believe that if if I could be talented enough, I could level the playing field to make a difference when it comes to police officers and the over-policing in our community. Because other people aren't treated the way minorities are treated in underserved communities. I've come to understand that the police, in many respects, create artificial and invisible walls. And oftentimes, it's to form borders around certain communities in order to keep certain elements contained within them. And the question is, what does the quality of life look like within those communities? And more importantly, how much is the methods and the manner in which policing takes place within those communities? How much do police contribute to a lesser quality of life in those communities? So I was attracted to doing the work because one, it was personal to me from my own experience coming up. But then two, it is an area of injustice that really, if you think about it, the people that we're talking about that are the victims of this kind of conduct are not sympathetic victims. No. So if you think about constitutional violations, an individual may have drugs on them or they may have a gun and a police officer violates their Fourth Amendment rights. And as a result, that gun or those drugs winds up being suppressed and not coming in. The public hears about that story. And on one hand, you have an individual who they see as a criminal that had a gun or has drugs. And on the other hand, you have an individual that is seen as a hero. That's a law enforcement officer. The people that are crying out for justice in the case of constitutional violations are often not sympathetic victims, particularly in the cases that we hear about, you know, publicly. Um, The media coverage of these individuals is different. The way that the stories are told for these individuals is different. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of indifference about individuals. And there's also predispositions against victims of constitutional violations and also in favor of members of law enforcement. There are some people that flat out, I do not care. I side with the police. Mm-hmm. side with the police. Mm-hmm. And much of that is because in their own experiences, they do not what, know what it's like to live in a community that is policed the way certain communities are policed. For me, because I have that personal experience, I, want to be, I wanted to be able to contribute in the area in a way that's going to make a difference. So let's, let's get into the Miranda rights. How would you, or what, what is Miranda rights exactly? First of all, the Miranda warnings or Miranda rights, as most people know it, started off with a Supreme Court case. And the mm-hmm. case is Miranda v. Arizona. And in that particular case, there was a young man whose last name was Miranda, 
who was arrested uh, and suspected of committing sexual assault or even rape on an 18-year-old young lady. He was taken into police custody. He was interrogated for two hours. At the end of the interrogation, he basically signed a sworn statement confessing to the crime. And in the statement, the written statement, it indicates his understanding of the fact that the words on this paper can be used against him, the statement can be used against him in a prosecution against him and so on and so forth. What wound up happening was that confession became the basis for him to be convicted of the sexually related offenses. And he wound up being sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. He appealed the conviction. He first appealed it to the Arizona Supreme Court. The Arizona Supreme Court affirmed the conviction. So in other words, they agreed with the prosecutors and said, serve your term. Believe that the prosecutors and the more important, the police officers acted within their constitutional bounds. Uh, he then took it the next step and went to the United States Supreme Court and the very famous 1963 case of Miranda versus Arizona uh, was decided by Justice Warren speaking for the majority of the court mm -hmm. in a five to four split decision. And that's where the Miranda warnings ultimately were born. What a lot of people don't realize is at the time, it was a very controversial decision. There were people, first of all, it was a split decision decision five to four. So the court was very split on the issue. Two, a lot of people thought that the Supreme Court's decision was very pro-criminal, that it was essentially giving criminals an added layer of protection mm. to avoid accountability for their wrongdoing. The Supreme Court actually felt differently. They felt that in interrogation situations, individuals are often at the mercy of law enforcement point that their will can often be overcome because of the pressure that they experience in those moments. The specific way that we think about it as people of color is how many times do people wind up sitting across the table from law enforcement and a false confession winds up being extracted? Exactly. So the principle is the same. It just hits for our community a little bit different because we see the specific examples of you know, wrongful convictions, convictions being overturned at a greater rate in our community when they're based on confessions that were obtained by law enforcement. And then we later on find out that the individual that confessed to a crime was not the person who actually committed that crime. Out of this Miranda v. Arizona case, what wound up happening is that these Miranda warnings or these Miranda rights started coming to the forefront. We talk about something called a Miranda card, because what wound up happening was that the Miranda case gave very specific rights that had to be communicated to an individual before they can be questioned or before they can uh, they can give a statement that can be used against them not only became widespread amongst law enforcement throughout the country but also became so mainstream in terms of the way it's presented in the media that you are hard pressed to find a television program involving police officers where those warnings didn't come out such that most people have a sense of what those warnings are from tv right right mainly from tv yeah that's right and in fact, there was actually a Supreme Court case in 2000 where Congress sought to make the Miranda warnings optional, that they were no longer compulsory and required. And one of the things that the court articulated was actually Justice Rehnquist, was that it's become so much of a part of the culture of our country, this understanding of the Miranda warnings, that they were not going to disturb those warnings that 
we as a people and as, as a culture have come to expect and understand is part of the rights that we have when dealing with law enforcement. That being said, what are the rights? Before I, I, I indicate the rights, let me take one step back. Here's something that most people do not realize that is a prerequisite to the requirement of Miranda warnings. The case law is very clear that you are not entitled to Miranda warnings until you are in police custody and they are questioning you while you're in custody. So the phrase, the legal phrase that we use is custodial interrogation. You're in police custody and they are interrogating you. So custody can mean if they put me in handcuffs, right? I'm in their yes. custody now? Yes. The legal okay. definition or the, the legal circumstance that we deal with when the court is analyzing custody is the question that's asked is, is the individual free to leave? Ah, okay. I'm glad you specified that. Yeah. If the person is free to leave, they're not in custody. Mm -hmm. If they're not free to leave, they're in custody. So okay. long as it's at the hands of law enforcement, because that's the other thing too. Constitutional protections protect this individual against overreaches by the government. So it doesn't apply if they're citizens that are detaining you or have you in custody. It applies if you are in custody at the hands of the government, which usually is in the form of law enforcement. So we first need to have custodial interrogation. So if you're going to use a statement against an individual when you have them in custody and you start to question them, the first thing that they must be advised is their right to remain silent. The next part of that is related to the first right, which is if you give up that right, if you choose to speak, anything you say can be used against you. The next thing, you have a right to an attorney. And the right to an attorney actually presents in a couple of different ways. You have a right to that attorney being present during any questioning. You have a right to wait for an attorney until you're questioned at all. And then let's say you're in a situation where you cannot afford an attorney. You have the right to have an attorney provided for you if you do not have the resources to afford your own attorney. So yeah. those are the main things that Miranda gives us. The right to remain silent, the right to an attorney. If we do not, we cannot afford an attorney, a right to have an attorney appointed for us to be present for the questioning and to represent your interests during the course of the questioning. I don't think we have to say how much of a difference that makes because as the Supreme Court articulated, if the concern is that the intimidation and the pressure of an interrogation can overcome the will of a person, once you introduce an attorney into that, into that environment, it changes the pressure dynamic. The statistics would indicate that when attorneys are present, the number of confessions that are ultimately given shrinks to almost none okay. because attorneys will almost always tell their clients, do not say anything. Yeah. Assert the right to counsel, no questioning. Do not question my client. So those are the rights that most people have become very accustomed to. How they play out on a regular basis, yeah, it's another story. But that's but that's what I was gonna ask. I'm like, with all these rights included in the memorandum warning, do these rights truly protect individuals in the criminal justice system? Because sometimes when I think about you have the right, and we could talk about it a little bit further in the in the episode, but when I think about you have the right to remain silent. I feel like there's always a way for that right to be taken away when it comes to interrogation, but also when they say that an attorney will be provided to you. And again, I'm going based on TV, right? Where yeah. it's a public defender that is given to you that has a thousand cases that they have to deal with on a daily basis. So I feel like even they don't have your best interest at heart. So the unfortunate case that you're unable to afford your own attorney, but when you receive this public 
defender, they don't really have your interests or your best interests at heart. So I feel like you don't even win then. You know, it's very interesting. There are a couple of things I want to react to that you're saying. There are are several misconceptions. If you ask a prosecutor who they would prefer to face in a criminal case, a private criminal defense attorney, and my colleagues that do private criminal defense work will get pissed that they hear me saying this. But let me go back and just say it again. If you ask a prosecutor who they would rather face, a private criminal defense attorney or a member of a public defender's office, more often than not, they will tell you, I would prefer to deal with the private attorney than the public defender. Most people do not have that impression when it comes to public defenders. And here's the reason why. Private defense attorneys have a financial motivation in doing their job and doing it well. However, public defenders have the strength of an institution behind them in many instances. So yes, they have a lot of cases. And yes, sometimes the lawyer that you first met in arraignment is not the same lawyer who's appearing at your next appearance. And you're not getting phone calls on a regular basis from your public defender and so on and so forth. All those things are true. But in terms of knowing the law, knowing how the law is changing, all of those things, the institution behind the public defender's office tends to be much more formidable for the prosecutor than the private defense attorney that's in a small office, solo practitioner. There's a misconception in that. In terms of the right being taken away, the right to remain silent, one thing that you learn about the law as you go through law school is you got rules and then you have exceptions to rules. There we go. Right. Right. So do we have a right to remain silent? The answer is yes. Are there exceptions in, in, in fact-based situations that ultimately may result in different findings by a court? The answer is yes. What if your assertion of your right to counsel is equivocal or ambiguous? Right. It's clear. Mm-hmm. You may feel you're asserting your right to counsel, but because it's not clear and ambiguous, a court may ultimately find that there was not a clear, unequivocal assertion of the right to counsel. Therefore, the statement comes in. There are situations where some people have asserted their right to remain silent with respect to a certain topic that police want to interrogate them about. And they think that that would then translate into a blanket assertion of your right to remain silent. The case law says there is such thing as a limited right to remain silent, a limited assertion of that right. A case-by-case basis, the court is looking at what are the facts that present here and is there an exception to the right to remain silent and the right to counsel that may apply under the circumstances. To echo what you're saying, for the uneducated in terms of legal work, and and I'm sorry if that doesn't come across the right way in terms of the way I phrased it, but those that haven't been trained in the law, the way that that ultimately plays out is, yeah, we have this right, but this right winds up being taken away no sooner than you think you have it. Exactly. But the truth of the matter is every rule has an exception, has a series of exceptions. And the, the right, asserting your right to remain silent, asserting your right to counsel, is no different. Okay. Cause I'm thinking about a story that I heard about in um, 2019, where a 17 year old Brooklyn boy was arrested in that fall and a detective read him his rights in a precinct interrogation room and asked him if he would like to talk. And then the teen said, no, 
But a video was obtained by the city, which shows that the cop was leaving the room, then coming back casually to chat with the teen's mom. I guess they got the mom involved. And then uh, the cop, I guess, asked, do you want to ask him what happened after she said she doesn't know why her son is being detained? And with no lawyer present, the nervous teen who was being withheld by the city casually just started talking to his mom with the cop in the room because he wants to explain to his mom what happened. He explained how the cops approached him, questioned him and everything. Then the detective starts questioning the minor directly, invoking his mom like, we got to ask these questions, you know, because your son may be in a lot of trouble. And then the boy later told his legal aid lawyer that he didn't realize what he was saying to his mother was actually going to be used against him. And then the cop quickly presented a paper to the teen and he said, do me a favor, you just sign here. And the detective says nonchalantly, me indicating that it's just questions that I just read off to you. But what the team didn't know is that he just signed away, signed away his Miranda rights. So it's like situations like this that I'm like, as quickly as you could receive it is as quickly as it could disappear because of manipulation. Yeah, it's very interesting. And these get litigated on a regular basis. Typically, once the right to remain silent is unambiguously asserted, that's the end of the interrogation. Can't ask anything else. Spontaneous statements are always admissible against you. So let's say, for example, the scenario is detectives are interrogating you. You're sitting in a room. They're interrogating you. They they read you your Miranda warnings before any questions are asked. They ask you if you wish to speak and you say, no, I do not wish to speak. They leave the room. They leave you in the room. They get you something to drink, something to eat, and they leave you in the room. We're going to wait until we process you, whatever the case may be. Recording devices in the room and you're sitting there and you just start talking to yourself. That raises a legal issue. Who required you to do that? Who prompted you to do that? In fairness, should those statements be able to be used against you? Exactly. That's what I'm questioning. That's where that case-by-case analysis ultimately comes in because now it invokes other areas, right? When you talk about a 17-year-old, most people would say, but it's a 17-year-old. It's a child. So that now implicates whether or not there should be a different legal standard for a minor. In that instance, where you have an individual sitting in a room by themselves, now that implicates the question of whether or not an individual, even in police custody, is left in a room by themselves, whether or not they have a privacy interest of their own thoughts and their own words when they're under a reasonable expectation that nobody's hearing what they have to say. These are the, the now the, the nuances that come up when it comes to these Miranda warnings. There's no question it exists in the law. Lawyers and judges serve to complicate the law more so than clarify it. It's one of the ways to protect your expertise. Because okay. if law was so simple, why do you need the degree? And I want to ask these questions because a lot of the times in the medical field or the law field, a lot of us common folks, we base it on these TV shows that we're watching. You know what I mean? The medical field, we're watching Grey's Anatomy and we're thinking this how these are how things operate in a hospital. And the same way for watching um, judge shows or courtroom shows or Law and Order SVU and all these different type of stuff, we base it on what we see on TV. You know, so I I really want to know the truth and the ins and out of what really happens on a day to day basis. What happens if a police officer doesn't read me or read a person's their Miranda rights? Will the case get dismissed? Like, how does that work? First of all, there are two constitutional rights that are implicated by Miranda. 
Fifth Amendment, again, which is our constitutional right against self-incrimination. Sixth Amendment is our right um, to counsel. Either one of those, or in many instances, both of those, is a basis to be able to have a statement that is obtained in violation of Miranda excluded so that it cannot be offered against you at the time of trial. So it cannot be part of the evidence against you. There is a doctrine that we deal with when it comes to constitutional violations that's called fruit of the poisonous tree. And what the fruit of the poisonous tree essentially does is we analyze what is happening with a member of law enforcement in the moment. And we sit there and we determine if that conduct is legally and constitutionally appropriate. If it's not, then what happens is we look at what follows from that unconstitutional behavior. And that's what winds up being considered the fruit of the poisonous tree. And I don't know who wants to eat poisonous fruit. Most people throw out fruit that they believe is poisonous. So that's that's where the analogy comes in. The doctrine applies. So if you determine that there's illegal and unconstitutional police conduct, what was created based on the conduct then gets excluded. So if they obtain a confession, it's excluded, right? If they obtain certain property, the property could be excluded. If it's a gun or if it's drugs or whatever the case may be, it can be excluded because of that. So under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. So basically with what you're saying, just to make it clear. So are you stating that if they were to get a statement from me or were to search my car or whatever and they did not read me my rights those will be excluded like they just don't stand cars are separate from statements okay so only applies to statements okay so with a state so with a statement would that now statement be thrown out because they didn't read me my rights are you in custody the answer is yes they seek to interrogate you or ask you questions without first reading you your Miranda warnings. That statement is excluded. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how does it work with um cars, with car searching? Because, you know, cars- we go through that a lot as well. So what are our rights or what are the laws when it comes into terms of like searching someone's car? So cars implicate as opposed to Miranda which is Fifth and Sixth Amendment. Now we're talking about Fourth Amendment constitutional law, which has to do with searches and seizures. The body of law regarding search and seizure in vehicles is actually quite complicated, right? For the most part, a police officer can search anywhere within the grabbable area within a car, anywhere within the passenger compartment, so long as they have a legal basis to stop the vehicle in the first place. And we already know what that means. You know, we already know what that means. There's always going to be a legal basis on why they have the right to search your car. Okay. And sometimes it's a manufactured basis. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. But the case law, traffic violations. Is that a basis to pull a vehicle over? Yes. We've seen cases where officers claim that they smell marijuana. When you're in the hood, you sit there and you say, there's no way you're driving past and you smell marijuana, you could smell it because it's strong, but to be able to pinpoint that it's coming from a vehicle, come on. Exactly. But nevertheless, there are cases where that's been upheld to be a legal basis for a stop. As long as there is a legal basis for the stop, police can pull you out of the vehicle. Once they pull you out of the vehicle, they can search the vehicle. The limitation then becomes the compartments within the vehicle. Okay. You got that glove compartment, sealed area. You got that little center console, closed area. You got the trunk of the vehicle, closed area. Usually, 
in those situations, you need a warrant to search those areas. However, there are even exceptions when it comes to that. Because if the police have to bring you into custody and they have to impound your vehicle, they are able to do an inventory search of your vehicle where they're able to go through the vehicle, including the compartments, and document everything that's found. And if they find something in your vehicle through an inventory search, it can be used against you. It's fair game. Okay, so let's back up a little bit because stuff like this gets me hot. Because <laughs> again, like you said, living in inner cities and in the hood, we see this over and time and time again. We, we see it on the news. We hear about it. If a person gets stopped. So you're telling me if there is a legal right that the officer is saying, this is why we stopped you. We need to search your car. I have no right to say, no, I'm not getting out the car. You can't search it. I have to get out the car. Let me take a step back. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to take a circuitous route. Okay. I tell people all the time, a police officer that's intent to do something, even if it's illegal, is going to do it. You cannot stop them from doing it if they're intent on doing it, even if it's illegal. And I will tell you from deposing police officers in cop cases, in almost every deposition I do of a police officer, I ask a police officer under oath, does an individual have the right to resist an unlawful arrest? Every single police officer I ask that, they say, no, they do not have a right to resist if I'm arresting them. Wow. So I say that as an example to say, if a police officer is intent on doing something, you cannot stop them from doing it if that's their intention to do it. So the time to fight is not there at the vehicle. Okay. So that's what I was going to say. I, I would say then it's it's useless to try to fight them on that. Correct. Now, what I tell people to do when an officer stops them, let's say for a traffic stop. Now think about it from a common sense perspective. You fail to signal, a police officer pulls you over. What is it in a failure to signal that should give the police officer a legal basis to search your entire vehicle? They have to have some information that gives them reasonable suspicion in certain instances, probable cause in other instances to search the vehicle. Traffic stop alone is not enough. But you don't know that as the average citizen. Right. So what do you do in that situation? First of all, you always ask an officer if you're free to leave for the same reason we just talked about with Miranda. If they tell you no, you are in what? Custody. Custody. That's one. Two, you should always make sure you declare to the officer, I am not consenting to any searches. Mm. I'm not consenting to any search. The third thing that I tell people that they should do is they should call, take their cell phone, call 911, and leave the cell phone somewhere in the center council of the vehicle. And here's the reason why. 911 calls are recorded and maintained for six months. So anytime you have a stop and you are sitting up there having a conversation with the police officer and you need proof to be able to say, I'm not consenting to this search and this officer searched anyway, you have a proof problem. How are you going to prove it? Well, if you tell your lawyer, I called 911 and my phone line was open while I was sitting there with the police officer, your attorney should be smart enough to know I have to get that 911 call because if I get that 911 call, I'm going to hear that he did not consent to the search. And that may also that may be a basis to say that there's a Fourth Amendment violation to keep out the evidence. But here's the fear, though. Do we take out the phone and put it there before they come to the car? Because, you you know, our fear is I ain't trying to pull out no phone or anything before they tell me, put your hands down, put your hands up, don't touch anything. And you're scared that what if I start using my phone and then that becomes a problem? The answer is yes. 
You should sit there and you should ask the officer immediately. Check to see if they have a body-worn camera on. If they have a body-worn camera on, you have to check and look at it and see if there's a light displayed. Because every body-worn camera, when it is actually on, there's a light that's illuminated. And you can sit there and say to the officer, officer, please make sure your body-worn camera is turned on and please wait until your body-worn camera is activated before we go any further. They may or may not listen, but nevertheless... You want to be able to make sure that occurs. If they do not have a body-worn camera, I would say that what you should do is immediately ask for a supervisor on scene. Immediately. Can I please have a supervisor on scene? I do not feel comfortable. I'm concerned about my safety. Can I please have a supervisor on scene? These are the, some of the things that we can do in order to be able to preserve our rights in these situations. Because the average person does not know the body of law, search and seizure law that deals with, with traffic stops. Exactly. People say, people say it all the time. I know my rights. I know my rights. I, you're not supposed to do this. I know my rights. Yeah, most of us don't. That's what I'm saying. Most of us don't. Yeah. Because even what you're sharing now, I'm envisioning a person because we don't always want to call 911 when we know we're being stopped because it easily could be that they're saying your light bulb is out, you know, you missed the stop sign or whatever. And I got 911 on the call. Right. So most of the times you feel the need to now call 911 to say, I don't consent to a search once they've actually approached your vehicle and started yeah. talking to you. But again, we have a fear as black Americans that once they come to the vehicle, we automatically, I, my hands on the dashboard, I'm not going to make no sudden moves unless they ask me to, then I'll do so. So you're saying once they approach the vehicle, if I do want to use my phone to call 911 for a backup as recording, that I should say the words that I want to see a supervisor or turn on your body cam. And that would kind of alleviate the situation and enabling me to call 911. That won't enable you to call 911, but it would put it would create a situation where the officer has another layer of, of check on their conduct. That's really what you're looking for. Okay. Here's the other thing too. In most vehicle stops, it takes a little bit before the police stop you. You driving down the street, you see the lights and the siren. Woo, woo, woo. The first thing that you say to yourself, is it me? They trying to stop me? Right. At some point, you realize you're the person being stopped. You pull your vehicle over. What I'm saying is before you get to the place where the officer stops their car, gets out of their vehicle, makes their way to your vehicle. At some point when you realize this is for me, make that 911 phone call. Request the supervisor on scene. Drop that phone in the center console with the phone open. Turn it face down so that the officer can't see that the phone line is actually open. Be smart. And still, by the time the officer comes... Get them hands 10 and 2 or get them hands on the dashboard so that the officer ultimately realizes that you're not a physical threat to their safety. Mm, okay. Understood. And we do it. We do it. We do it when we have kids in the car. So the police come and they stop us and we have kids in the car. We take the time to turn around and say, listen, no matter what happens, don't say anything. Put your hands here. So that same amount of time you can use as well in a different stop scenario, different stop situation. Going back again, when they now say, when you say I do not consent to a search, like you said, if an officer has an agenda, he will do it. Just because I say I do not consent doesn't mean that they're not still going to try. That's very true. But one of the bases 
for property found during a search to be admissible against you, even if there's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, is if you consent to it. Mm. So let's say, for example, the police come to your house and police do it all the time. Here's the scenario that you that you have. Police come to your door. They knock on the door, ring the bell, whatever. You come, you open the door. When you open the door, you see it's police. The police sit there and they say, you know, we received the call about this residence. We'd like to be able to come in and search. May we come in? May we come in the house? You turn around and you say, no, you can't come in my house. Or you'll say, do you have a warrant? No, we don't have a warrant. I'm asking you if we're able to come into the house. No, you're not able to come into the house. You go to close the door. Thank you very much, officer, but I'm not going to allow you to come into my house. Some officers will put their foot in the door so you can't close the door. Right. So in that situation, you make abundantly clear. Again, call 911. Get someone to call 911 while you're there. If somebody else is in the house to be able to do it and make abundantly clear. Officer, you're trying to come into my house. I am not consenting to any search. Mm -hmm. You've indicated you do not have a warrant to enter my home. I am not consenting for you to come into my home. Please take your foot out of my doorway. You see what I'm saying? If the officer determines, as sometimes they do, I have exigent circumstances, I don't need a warrant, I'm going to do this anyway. You don't know the legal analysis that's involved in that. You don't know it. So by sitting up there making abundantly clear that you're not consenting to a search, what you're doing is taking away one of the bases that prosecutors will sometimes use to get in illegally seized property because consent is always a basis to overcome even illegally seized items if mm -hmm. you consented to it so i'm taking that away i'm going to make it abundantly clear unequivocal i did not consent to this i did not consent to you searching my car i did not consent to you searching my house i did not consent consent to you coming into my property it cannot be construed that i did because i absolutely did not Understood. so that's one of the reasons why i tell people that they should do that so we're we're here uh listeners located in new york city but i'm curious how does miranda rights vary across different jurisdictions or countries are there any notable differences or similarities in application internationally or in other states I will admit that I am not as well versed in international law, but I will say this. The United States government is often seen as a model to other nations in terms of its judicial system. Also, the United States is often looked upon as one of the most friendly countries when it comes to civil rights. Okay. That we are often afforded more civil rights than people are in other countries. The first part of your question to answer it. Miranda versus Arizona is the law of the land because it's Supreme Court precedence. So it is applied equally, whether you're in New York or you're in Tennessee, it applies the same. There have been states that have attempted to pass legislation that would have an impact on Miranda v. Arizona. However, those cases never get upheld. That legislation is almost always deemed unconstitutional because Miranda v. Arizona is the supreme law of the land when it comes to custodial interrogations. A couple more questions and we can wrap up. And I appreciate all the information that you've been given thus far. Like I said, this is ultimately even educating myself. Can you provide... And I know there are certain um, restrictions with lawyers. I don't know if it's the same way, like uh, I'm just giving, you know, how therapists can't share certain things <laughs> that their client tells them. So I assume those say, um, same rules kind of apply with lawyers. But are you able to give examples of situations where you had a client that did choose to waive their Miranda rights and did speak to law enforcement without an attorney present? What do you believe were the 
factors that influence them to do so? So I'll give a hypothetical because I am under a duty of confidentiality, so I can't disclose names and so on and so forth. And I also not give the specific scenario because sometimes that can be a basis to identify. Okay. A scenario that comes up often, and I've seen in my own practice, is when individuals think that they can provide certain information but refuse to provide other information, and they think they can ultimately get away with that. So what will happen is the police will ask them if they want to speak, and they'll say something like, it depends on what you want to talk to me about. Mm. That's equivocal. That's ambiguous. That's not a clear assertion of the right. So the police in that particular instance, as long as they've advised of the rights, because you have to advise of the rights before you interrogate, there isn't a clear assertion of the right. They start questioning. During the course of the questioning, you're answering certain questions that you're comfortable with. Right. Do you know Boo Boo Johnson? In your mind, you say to yourself, there's no harm in me saying I know Boo Boo Johnson. So you tell the police, yeah, I know Boo Boo Johnson. Where do you know Boo Boo Johnson from? In your mind, you say there's no harm. In admitting I know Boo Boo Johnson from around the way. So you say, we grew up in the same neighborhood. I know him from around the way. Mm -hmm. Then they ask, when's the last time you saw Boo Boo Johnson? What you don't realize is, in doing this, that prosecutors and police officers are not always trying to take statements in order to get the full confession on the ultimate issue in a case. Sometimes it's just an element of a case or a specific fact in the case that they want to be able to establish and shore up. So maybe there's another statement that the police have obtained from another individual where that person has said, yeah, this guy with this description, he's known Boo Boo Johnson from the neighborhood for probably the last five years. I saw them together for the last, uh, about two weeks ago. So the police officers are not trying to get you to admit that you committed a crime with Boo Boo Johnson. Mm. They just want to be able to confirm, you know him, you know him from the community, you know him from back in the day, and you last saw him two weeks ago. Right. So that's one of the reasons why we tell people all the time, you don't know what law enforcement knows, you don't know what the prosecutors know. So your course of action is remain silent, invoke the right and just sit there silently. But what we do as a people, we always think we can out talk a situation. I find myself in it. I feel like if Yo, just give me a chance to talk. Just give me a chance to talk. I could talk my way out of a situation. Remain silent. Do not say anything. Any defense you can give in that moment, you can give once you have a lawyer in your face and you're sitting in front of a judge at a later time in the litigation. If the information is valuable, it's valuable at that moment and it's valuable later on as well. It doesn't lose its value because you don't open your mouth and give it at that exact moment. Most people don't realize that police officers can lie and deceive you in order to get you to confess. They, they think it would be wrong for a cop to lie to you in order to get you to confess something. Guess what? The law is very clear. They absolutely can. Mm -hmm. They can deceive you. They certainly can. We think we're outsmarting them. But if I'm talking to a barber and this barber is cutting 10 heads a day for 15 years and I'm not a barber, why the heck do I think I can teach a barber about barbering when they're the one that's been doing it for whatever period of time and I don't do it at all? But because we feel like we're in the presence of a barber and we've been observing how they've been doing it, we think we have some type of knowledge on it. But I like what you were saying because it is true. Some of us are 
are naive to thinking, you know, cops are here to uphold the law. They wouldn't lie. They wouldn't manipulate. So it's okay for me to answer certain questions. Or I could imagine for many youth or even adults, the fear and anxiety that kicks in. Mm -hmm. So in that moment of interrogation, It's better, like you said, just to keep your mouth shut, remain silent. But some part of us feels like I need to give some kind of explanation to show I didn't do it. I'm a good person. I want to go home. Get me out of here. And I can imagine that's how much youth or how many youth feel that same way where it's just like, again, I'm thinking about the Central Park Five or the um, Exonerated Five case where it's just like those kids, those boys at that time were afraid and they just wanted to go home. So for them, they were like, okay, I'll answer this call. Where's my mom? Oh, my mom's not here. Mm, Your mom's on the way, but we need for you to answer these questions first. Before I go to the last question, in those situations with parents, how does that work? If they put you in custody and they read you your rights and they're trying to interrogate you, how does the whole situation with minors and parents and waiting for the parents to come or allowing um, a minor or even an adult phone calls? So phone calls you're entitled to. As a matter of fact, some of the forms that are generated as a result of an arrest, an arrest form has a space for phone numbers dialed. You do have a you have a right to make a phone call. When it comes to parents, there is case law out there that says that a minor below the age of 16 is entitled to have their parent present in these kinds of situations. The scenario you have with a 17-year-old doesn't have that protection. So what often happens is, just like in the scenario that you talked about, that 2019 case, because the parent does not have a right to be present, if that parent is present, they often can become a conduit to create in the mind of the potential defendant spontaneous statements unsolicited by law enforcement. You put a mother in the room or a father in the room with an individual, cop leaves the room, your parent is here, I brought your parent up, I'm going to leave y'all so, you know, going to give y'all some privacy for a few minutes. Leave the room, close the door, whatever the case may be. Mother sits there, what's happening? What What is going on here? Tell me what's going on. You don't realize. You don't realize. Recording in pl- progress. You sit up there talking to your mother. Cop is not asking you the questions. These statements are now spontaneous. Wow. A court's going to have to decide if there's fundamental unfairness in that situation such that it becomes food of the poisonous tree. Court have to decide that. Yeah. It's a different thing if you're a minor under 16 years of age. I didn't even know it was 16. I thought it was 17. 16. Oh, wow. Okay. I found out about the Supreme Court decision that happened last year, 2022, where the Supreme Court limited the ability to enforce Miranda rights in a ruling that said that suspects who are not warned about their right to remain silent cannot sue a police officer for damages under federal civil rights law, even if the evidence was ultimately used against them in the criminal trial. Is this still ongoing, this decision? The Supreme Court has ruled and that's it. As a matter of fact, there's a case called Marbury versus Madison, a, a case from the 1800s where the Supreme Court ultimately articulated, we're not final because we're right. We're right because we're final. Once they speak on the issue, unless they overturn it, that then becomes the law of the land. So this is what we're dealing with right now. Whenever we read Supreme Court decisions, we have something that's called the holding, which is basically what you articulated, right? What's the what's the law that comes out of the case? But what is important is to know what is the factual circumstances that the court was asked to address in that instance. And I'll give you another example to bring it back to Miranda. I'm sorry, to write to counsel. There was a body of law 
for a period of time that said that if you were indigent, if you didn't have money, you only had a right to counsel if you were being charged with a capital crime. And why did that happen? Because there was actually a case before the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court found that when an individual was charged with a capital crime and wanted an attorney but couldn't afford one and was denied an attorney, the Supreme Court found it was unconstitutional to deny that person a lawyer under those circumstances. What wound up happening is the facts of a person being charged with a capital crime was the linchpin for people to be able to say, you are only entitled to a lawyer if you're poor, if you're being charged with a capital crime. And for a couple of decades in certain states, that's what was happening until a later case went before the Supreme Court. And ultimately the Supreme Court said, no, no, you are entitled to an attorney regardless if it is a capital case or not, mm -hmm. to clarify the law. So it's the it, it really depends on the facts. It has not completely eliminated the ability to be able to sue police officers for constitutional violations when cases are, are, are ultimately decided by that evidence. But there is something that is important as far as the work that I do. Oftentimes, in order to be able to bring an action against a police officer for malicious prosecution, you have to be able to show that you obtained a favorable outcome in that case. That's one of the elements that you must satisfy in order to succeed in a malicious prosecution action. So if you get convicted, no favorable decision, no malicious prosecution action. Now, what you're looking for in that situation is police conduct themselves in a particular way. They illegally obtain evidence or a confession or whatever the case may be. During the course of the litigation, the criminal litigation, the constitutional issue is challenged. And what winds up happening is that the court ultimately determines that a constitutional violation occurs, throws out the evidence and the case winds up being tossed. Now that you have a favorable outcome and now you can bring it in action against the police officers. So there needs to be a favorable outcome for the defendant in the criminal case, plaintiff in the civil case. So with that, how do you anticipate the evolution of our civil rights in the future? It's a difficult question to answer. And the reason why it's difficult is because technology is ever evolving and it's changing the landscape of law enforcement tremendously. Everywhere you go nowadays, there are cameras. You have multiple cameras on your person, depending on the kind of smartwatch you have, cell phone you have. You can't, it's hard to go three blocks in New York City without encountering a government-issued camera. All of these things create evidence, potential evidence and footage that can be obtained. With all of these things happening, what's what's going on is that we are being structurally stripped of many of our rights without even knowing it. There was a time 10, 15, 20 years ago that everybody was talking about big brother, big brother, big brother. All of us were just like, ah, come on. Like those are the conspiracy theorists and so on and so forth. Little did we know how much nowadays our privacy has just eroded to almost nothing. Take for instance, uh, just to touch on it really quickly. Before, if you're going to get caught speeding, a police officer would actually have to do some work. Now there are cameras all over the place that are doing it. So there's very little that we can do that's not caught on camera somewhere. And that is kind constantly shrinking the world around us. That, of course, is going to have an impact on our civil rights. It's going to have an impact on policing because every camera can potentially be ac accessed by law enforcement. There's a whole body of cases that actually deal with the propriety of obtaining discovery in criminal matters from devices like Siri, Google Homes, Amazon um, devices. They have the Amazon Echoes and all of those, those different devices that these devices are always listening and recording what's being said. 
Can we pause for a second on that, please? Can we pause for a second? I don't know how many times I tell this to people, but they feel like I'm talking like something out of a TV show or a movie. Like, oh, come on. That's not going to happen. Like, it's not listening. Our phones aren't listening. And I'm like, what makes you think that's not the case? I'm like, don't you see how many TV shows or movies say like they got to actually unplug the Google phone or the, the Alexa or the Siri before they start talking? You know what I'm saying? So the fact that you're saying this, I'm like, okay, thank you. So I know I wasn't going crazy. All right. No, you're not going crazy. As a matter of fact, if you think about how the technology works, it makes perfect sense. Anytime you say the words, I have one right here in my office. Anytime I say, hey, Google, it activates. How can it do that if it's not constantly listening? So anybody that thinks that it's not constantly listening, um, you crazy because they're <laughs> constantly listening. And what's happened is there are cases where prosecutors have actually sought to subpoena the metadata and the recorded files from Google, from Amazon, from Apple, in order to be able to get that information to a system and prosecute prosecutions. The net is closing around us. The thing is, most of us have become so accustomed to technology, we're not looking to reverse it at all. Like you said, although technology is advancing and in certain circumstances to our favor, but I like the way you used it or you phrased it. It feels like it's placing us in a bubble where we're constantly being watched, where it's just like, yeah, I don't know about this. Yeah, it's very true. We live more and more of our life on the internet. I can't tell you how in the work that I'm doing, more and more I've had to counsel clients about fighting their norms with posting everything to their social media accounts. You were involved in an accident. You had an incident with the police. Do not post these things to your social media accounts. But mm. like you said, we're so programmed that we sit there and we do it. Well, guess what? The law has evolved. Now there's greater access to those social media accounts when you are a party to an action. So we can't even by setting our privacy settings, we can't do that. Also, with the use of metadata, metadata now becoming part of discovery and people becoming more sophisticated with it, even when you want to delete stuff in order to preserve your privacy. It's still there. It's still there. And you could get the metadata and we could see exactly when you deleted it and what exactly you deleted and so on and so forth. To finish off, how long have you been practicing and what is some of the work that you've actually done in the community, you know, besides the law that you practice? So this past February, this is 2023, right? This past February makes 18 years I'm admitted to practice law. When I first started practicing law, I made a commitment that I was going to give back to the community however I can. Obviously, my hope was that I would be successful enough that at some point I could do it financially. But my commitment was before I get to that place, I'm going to find ways to give back. And the way that I've done it is... I coached mock trial at the undergraduate level um, for 20 years. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Yeah. In addition to that, I've helped to create, along with other attorneys, I helped to create a mock trial program at the middle school level uh, within underserved communities so that they can be exposed mm -hmm. to the law at a very formative time in their lives, you know? Yeah. I've taught as an adjunct professor of legal studies at St. John's University. I did that for 15 years. I also have taught as a adjunct trial advocacy professor at St. John's Law School and also at Pace University Law School. And for the last eight years, I'm very proud uh, to say that I've 
coach youth football in Southeast Queens. Shout out to the Rosedale Jets football and cheerleading program. President Jacques Leandre, uh, who happens to be a law partner of mine, runs a phenomenal organization where we are able to touch hundreds of young people every single year and teach them life skills and life lessons through the medium of football. For me, I'm not in it for the trophies, but I'm in it for being able to help young people have a very unique experience that can help serve them as they get older in their decision-making and they're controlling themselves in confrontation moments, controlled aggression, um, working as part of a team, sacrificing the me for the we, some of the very important lessons that we uh, we learn in competitive sports. So um, those are some of the ways that I've given back. I've often found a way to be able to balance law practice with various community endeavors. So it's something that's near and dear to me, and I'm going to keep doing it so long as God continues to bless me with health and strength. Well, I just want to say let's clap, please. Let's clap for that. I, I appreciate everything that you just mentioned, uh, just the work that you're doing. Just as soon as you said mock trial, I'm like, oh, my gosh, do you know how vital that is? I wish now I'm like, dang, I wish I was able to get that when I was in junior high or high school, because I could imagine how many of my peers, male peers specifically, could have benefited from something like this. Can you tell my audience like how they can get in contact with you if they would like more expertise or counsel? How can they get in contact with you? Oh, certainly. Um, So the website is www.vesaplaw.com. That's the website for my firm. How would you spell um, Vesup? V-E-S-S-U-P is in Peter. V-E-S-S-U-P. Okay. The law officer, Kareem R. Vesup, is my page on Facebook. That's a basis to get in touch with me as well. Those are the best ways to reach me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kareem, thank you so much. Uh, just again, for all the knowledge that you dropped, I believe that not only myself, but it's definitely going to help my audience and those that listen, because I also want parents to actually share this with their children as well. Not just for us as adults, start teaching your children as well, you know, um, our black and brown children, how to conduct themselves. So thank you so much for being on She Discovered podcast. Um, audience, again, As always, I hope that you had your own discoveries in this episode, that you take the information to heart, that you utilize it. I hope you never have to utilize it. But if that's the case, I hope you learned a tremendous amount in this episode. So tune in until next time. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. I hope you've gained some knowledge, insight, and clarity in this moment creating your own inner discoveries. And most importantly, head over to at She Discovered Podcast on Instagram to interact with me and receive more tips and info relating to all topics discussed. As always, you are appreciated.